This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. During the quarantine time of this COVID crisis, the wild animals in some of the parks in India are at additional risk to the poachers. Saving Wild Tigers would like to raise additional funds at this time for their protection. To that end, we have created an online video concert which premieres on our website, savingwildtigers.org, on May 30th. This Sacred Music for Sacred Forest concert will include such artists who are donating their music, including Krishnadas, Trevor Hall, MC Yogi, Wa, Gauravani, Vishwamba Sheikh, Nina Rao, Devadas, and many more. Please join us at this concert on May 30th and make your contribution. We look forward to seeing you then. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Nina Rao from SavingWildTigers.org. On this Earth Day, I am premiering a talk that I had with Dr. Ulas Karanth and Dr. Kriti Karanth of Center for Wildlife Studies in India. For many years, I took people on wildlife trips in Africa and India, and I wanted very much for the trips to actually benefit the wildlife and wilderness areas directly in the places that we visited. And so I created this nonprofit called SavingWildTigers.org. And since 1997, actually, I've been supporting Dr. Ulas Karan's work. And I'm so happy to see that he is now sharing his legacy with his daughter, Dr. Kriti Karan, who's taking this work into the present and the future for the younger generations as well. I'm so happy to share this talk with you, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much. So greetings, everybody. Today is um, April 17th, 2020, and um, I'm very happy to have online with us today Dr. Ulas Karanth and Dr. Kriti Karanth, all the way from Bangalore, India. And um, I wanted to have a little chat with them today about conservation of tigers. 
particularly, as you know, I've been interested in this for many years. Uh, in fact, I met Ulas back in 2000, so 20 years ago, uh -huh. huh, Ulas? 1997, um, London. That was 97? Yes. Well, you, you have a good mind for dates, which obviously I don't. <laughs> so, all right, 1997, wonderful. So I was the Tiger meeting. You yeah. Know, the, uh, uh, the meeting site and sticker and everybody organized in zoological yeah. Right. And that was the time when I was beginning to take people on wildlife trips in India. And I wanted very much for my trips to benefit the wildlife as well. Uh, but I didn't want to donate directly to organizations, uh, big fundraising organizations, where there were big admin costs associated with the donations that were accepted. So I chose to create my own nonprofit called Saving Wild Tigers. And uh, along with Sunil Somalwar as well, we've been d collecting small sums of money uh, relative to some other institutions, but every dollar that we collect goes directly into the field. And that was our goal. So all these years I've been trying to keep in touch with Ulas about his work, uh, which for many years with, was with WCS, Wildlife Conservation Society. And simultaneously, um, he created, along with his daughter, uh, Kriti, an organization called Center for Wildlife Studies in India, which is now very active. And they both work together. She is the chief conservation scientist and director. And Ulas is probably a managing trustee and director as well, right? Um, also, I want to say that over the years, Ulas has uh, received many awards for his work, and uh, including the Padma Shri from the President of India in 2012. So, hi. Hello. <laughs> um, I wanted to just ask you a little bit about, if you want to just speak a little bit about your journey, Ulas, how when as a child... Um, and you were a teenager growing up in India, what was your inspiration for changing your course of study, which I believe was as a mechanical engineer at first, and then moving towards conservation biology? What was your inspiration? What happened at that moment? Uh, well, I was always interested in tigers and uh, the landscape that I grew in around Mangalore and in the Western Ghats, what we call uh, Malanad landscape now. Uh, I mean, strangely, now supports one of the world's largest tiger populations, 350 to 400 tigers. But at that point in time, they were probably down to 50 or 60. I was just getting into college and I was seeing tigers being hunted all around and everything being destroyed. It it made me feel bad, but I didn't know exactly what to do. Uh, but then in second year engineering, I read an article by Dr. George Schaller about how to study tigers. This was based on his study of tigers in early 60s in India. And it became very clear to me that just like engineering is used to solve problems, uh, we can take the same approach to conservation, collect data, use basic science, but solve conservation problems. It became obvious to me. And my obsession with tigers and my obsession with science got combined. 
And then I launched a nearly 10, 15 years journey to move away from engineering into really being a conservation scientist. Had you actually seen a wild tiger at that point? No, at that uh, time, uh, seeing wild tigers was not easy in India. I had wandered all over the forest. I had taken a motorcycle, gone to Nagarhole. Tigers were almost on their last legs. So, you know, today you can go to a park in India and photograph the tiger, and the tiger just has a bored look on its face. But that wasn't the case then. And uh, I actually saw my first wild tigers 15 years after I started looking for them. That's amazing. Because, you, you know, I, I remember last time when you came to talk in New York as well, you talked about your obsession with tigers. And it's so interesting that one would have an obsession for a creature like that that you hadn't even seen. I, I think the obsession comes from the animal's appeal, which is global. I mean, nobody has seen a tiger in Latin America and nobody had seen a tiger in Europe till one of Alexander's generals took one back to Europe in uh, 300 BC or whatever it was. And uh, it's the appeal of tigers is global. Everybody has a tiger mascot, icon, sports teams, conflicts, Everything named after tiger because the animal is like a magnet. Right. How was it for you, Kriti, as growing up with your father and your connection with the nature of India and um, absorbing the obsession <laughs> for the tiger that your father might have had? Tell us about you. Oh, well, I think I had the complete opposite experience uh, <laughs> than my dad because when I was when I turned a year old, my dad started taking me to the jungle with him. And obviously, there were a lot of ground rules set on how well I had, how well behaved I had to be. And uh, most of the time, I would be sitting hours and hours and hours in watchtowers in Nagarhole and, you know, sitting with a pair of binoculars, uh, no coloring books, no storybooks, no music, nothing. And all I had to do was spot something before he did. And after six hours of sitting in a watchtower, you know, the part I looked forward to most was actually going on a jungle ride in the evening. And from age one to age 18, this is what I did. Um, I kind of assumed that every other kid had a life like this. I didn't realize that I had perhaps uh, the most extraordinary childhood anybody could have ever have. And it's not something I can give my daughters today. So the appreciation uh, for it came much, much later. But I also saw the very difficult side of conservation that he and a lot of his colleagues faced. So from him, I, I kind of absorbed, and my mom actually, their passion for science and you know what it is to do research and ask questions and be scientists. Uh, but at the same time, I saw the difficult challenges of running your own uh, nonprofit organization, building teams, uh, kind of overcoming all the different obstacles that come your way. And I actually didn't want to do anything in wildlife or conservation uh, through my entire childhood. It was only that during my master's that I realized that, you know, there was actually space for two currents in the same field. So the the passion for it came later, but the the love for wildlife has always been there. And I understand. I mean, I, I don't have a science background, but... 
definitely when I first went to East Africa back in 1985 is where I've had my first taste of being out in the wilderness and really understanding because it's something that's just kind of transmitted to you. You don't even understand what's happening with this. How do you get so vested in the well-being of the habitat as well as the animals? And then when I went to India, what was so surprising to me, and this I learned when I went to that conference that Ulas was at in, in 1997, was how um, in a country that has only four, about 4% of the land mass of the earth, um, and 20% of the world population of humans is actually the most viable home for wild tigers in the past, now, and in the future. Would you agree? Uh, I assume the question is directed at me. Yes, either one of you. Yeah. I, I, I think uh, in the past... In the future, I'm not sure. Right now, that's the case because uh, among all the countries having tigers, India has made the most serious effort. Uh, there was no effort to bring back the tiger till the 1960s, late 60s. It, oh, everything started then. But there was a strange chemistry in India that operated. We had uh, uh, the first generation Indian conservationists who were small in number, but had connections and lobbied very effectively. And they found a prime minister like Mrs. Gandhi, who really had empathy for them and their views and took them seriously. And then she used her extremely strong political clout to bring in strong laws and reorient a forestry service, which actually had a disciplined structure for royal enforcement away from logging and uh, those kind of commercial forestry to focus on tiger conservation, at least in 10% of the land. So all that kicked in and uh, there was a miraculous recovery of tigers between 1970 and mid-1980s, which was totally unforeseen. Anything of that scale didn't happen in other places. But that doesn't mean that we should kind of relax and say we are the champions, we are not. We still can have a lot more tigers. We just have 3,000, we can have 10,000 plus. And world globally can have 50,000 tigers. Many of these countries have far more tiger habitat. And if they make the kind of effort they're beginning to make now, countries like Thailand and Russia and even China and Indonesia can bring back tigers big time. Hmm. That's actually a little surprising for me to hear. Do you feel the same in India as well, given that the population is so dense? Um, is there actually room for to create more wilderness habitat for them? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's pretty obvious to me why conservationists don't understand it. We have 300,000 square kilometers of government-owned reserve forests of which only 10% is carrying tigers at the numbers and densities they can. So we still have that. And even if we just do that, we can have 10 to 15,000 tigers in India. What we lack is a clear strategy, clear way to spend our money. There's a lot of missing pieces here, but space is not the issue. In fact, if you look at 
the economic growth and development that's happening in India, again, conservationists tend to view it as completely negative. Obviously, some of the growth is leading to bad infrastructure project, rupturing of corridors, unsustainable pressures from mining in some spots, all that is there. But on the plus side, it's moving people away from rural areas to urban occupations, away from what they traditionally did, which was to get their protein from the forest into earning incomes and buy domestic meat. So many things that accompany development are actually conducive to having more tigers in India. I, 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 I don't think people are getting an overall view that is completely scientific. And I think it's this seeking solutions in the past, in some past golden age, that's not going to get us more tigers. I think we need to be very pragmatic about it. And uh, I do think it's extremely doable, actually. Well, that's thank you for that clarification. I think it's that uh, most people aren't actually aware of that possibility. So um, one of the things you mentioned last time, Ulas, also when you gave uh, your talk in New York, you talked about um, how the, the landscape in India is home to some of the greatest biodiversity on the planet, actually, uh, because just because of the origins of the way, um, you know, all those billions of years ago that the landmass was formed. Um, can you explain a little bit more about why biodiversity is actually important? People talk about this all the time. Why do you consider biodiversity important? I think there are two levels of looking at why it is important. One is uh, purely on a utilitarian practical way. Many of the drugs that we get, many of the chemicals that we draw come from natural plants and animals, including the agricultural products, the pharmaceutical products. And given new technologies like gene editing and GMOs, we in fact have a greater potential to use the diversity of nature out there, including bad things like viruses that kill people, but there are a lot of good things out there in nature. So it makes sense to preserve some of it like an insurance for the future. But I think there is also the other thing. As we become more prosperous, more mechanized, and more automated as humans, um, biologically, we aren't that far from uh, the primitive humans that discovered agriculture 10,000 years ago. So I think to maintain connection to that nature uh, is important for us culturally and psychologically. That is why you see all the popularity among affluent cultures and societies. The fascination for nature is coming back big time, sometimes in very perverse ways, like you see on some of these new tiger stuff on Netflix, but yeah. in general, in general, we want nature. And I think uh, it's uh, it's like priceless paintings that you have inherited. And why do you want to rip it up for a couple of dollars right now when you can have it as well as have progress? I, I, I see, I don't see the logic in destroying nature in, or biodiversity, whichever point of view. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's detrimental for us in all ways. Um, there's a unique wisdom that lives in the, in nature that we just can't recreate right now. Um, so, and, uh, could we, yeah. One of the things that we forget, see, India has done a lot for conservation, 
But I sit back and crib because we do a lot more and we have a tendency to pat ourselves on the back for what we have done. But uh, fundamentally, underneath it, there's an old culture, a cultural tolerance, uh, which is far deeper than any other culture in the world has. Uh, we do, the average person, even one who is suffering depredations from a wild elephant or a tiger, will readily concede that other creatures have a right to live. And it's not theoretical. I've seen many Southeast Asian countries and Buddhist countries where notionally this idea is accepted, but in practice everything is wiped out and consumed. Whereas we do see in India, even among people who eat, kill wildlife, a ready acceptance of the idea that some part of the land should be safe for animals. And I think that gives us a very, very strong cultural foundation on which we can build a modern technological progressive conservation movement. Yeah, understood. Um, so then I might lead the question then uh, to Kriti, actually, at this point. You know, we understand that human beings are, you know, we're inextricably bound to nature, though we might not remember that all the time. And your project, Skriti, um, that you've created, which is uh, Wild Seve and um, Wild Chalet, can you talk a little bit about that and how you are using these projects to link um, the life that humans might be, would be living close to the wildlife wilderness areas and how conflicts arise and what, what you are doing to help alleviate that? So um, as a scientist, I started looking at human-wildlife conflict maybe 20 years ago, trying to understand um, the scale of the interaction between people and wildlife. And that can range from positive, neutral to negative. And typically, we tend to focus on the negative, which may be people losing their crops to elephants, livestock to tigers and leopards, um, and occasional human injury, human death as well. Uh, as a scientist, when we started to document this, uh, we did surveys across 17 sites across India, doing about uh, going to about 3,000 villages in different ecosystems, looking at different species. Uh, one thing that struck me uh, was no matter where we went uh, and how many house, households we talked to, there was an acknowledgement that these spaces were to be shared with animals. Sometimes these animals cause problems, but inherently that there is this recognition that these animals have been around as long, if not longer than us. And so the retaliation against wildlife typically only kicked in if there was a human injury or human death case. And pretty much all other kinds of economic losses were tolerated, right? And as we began to uh, dig deeper into the research, one thing that stood out very um, uh, immediately was that unlike most other countries, uh, uh, many states in India had a compensation system in place where if you had suffered some kind of loss, you could file a claim with the government and a claim would be processed and you'd get some kind of uh, reimbursement for your losses. But the system was broken and it was not working in, because it was riddled with delays, uh, bureaucracy, lack of transparency, and sometimes corruption as well. And so about five years ago, uh, came up with this program called Wild Seve, which is as simple as a, a, a toll-free number that now services 600 villages and about half a million people who live around two parks in India, 
Pandipur and Nagarhole, where we worked for a very long time. And the idea is very simple. You have um, a conflict incident with an elephant or a leopard or a tiger. You call into that number and leave a message or and we call you back to find out what happened. Uh, our field staff who in, located in the area arrive at the scene pretty much within 24 hours, help you document the scale of loss and help you file the claim. We as an NGO don't dispense the funding required. The money comes from the government of Karnataka. Um, I believe it's a model that's scalable and that can be adapted. Uh, even if you don't believe, uh, want to uh, give out compensation, the fact that you're responding and you're responding whether somebody calls once or calls 50 times. We've had you know, families call us 50, 55 times because of um, uh, crop damage by elephants, and we've gone 55 times. There's enormous goodwill built in the community that they know that, you know, yes, these guys care for wildlife, but they'll also try and come and help us. And these are the people living adjacent to these very parks that we care about, right? And so, so Wild Saver was born, it's going to turn five years old this year. Um, and as we started to implement the Save program, about two, three years ago, we noticed that there were a lot of these kids in these villages, where if you kind of mentioned the idea of a tiger or, or, or an elephant, they didn't get excited. They were either indifferent to it, or they were, there was kind of a fearful reaction uh, to the fact that they were seeing these animals frequently. So we launched a conservation education program, which targets village schools, and particularly we focus on middle school children. And it's a four-session program that's implemented um, uh, across uh, now in two, two states. We're going into our third state. So the program has kind of three goals, to increase empathy uh, in, in wildlife and nature, to create interest in, in wildlife and wild places and to also generate knowledge. And finally, give kids some basic safety do's and don'ts if they are in a conflict situation, either directly or uh, they see one happening in their village. Uh, the program has been enormously successful. We started with 38 schools in our first year. This year, we went to over 400 schools around uh, 11 parks across India. And the plan is to continue to grow the program. Uh, we've reached about 21,000 children in about 18 months. Um, and being scientists, we're measuring, uh, we're pre and post testing these children to know because quite often conservation programs are implemented and nobody checks whether they're working, what's working, what's not working. So we're pre and post testing children to see what did they know before we started the program? What do they know after? And we've found a couple of things. Uh, we found a you know 100% increase in knowledge and awareness about wildlife and wild places. Uh, interestingly, we found that Indian children are also highly empathetic. So on a, a hundred point scale, a, U a U.S. kid or a European kid perhaps would have scored a 60-70. Our Indian kids are already poised in the mid to high 80s, and by the end of our program, we're kind of pushing them into the mid to high 90s. So we are increasing empathy, but they're inherently empathetic, which is kind of reinforcing this idea of, you know, inherent tolerance for wildlife, right? So I, I think, uh, yeah, they're, uh, both, both programs are enormously successful, and we hope to kind of uh, scale them across the country in different languages, focusing on bears and wolves and lions, really what the kids are seeing at this point. Right. Um, 
So I want to just hold that thought for just a second, because the other thing I just wanted to talk about here was um, when Ulas last described to us how, what were the four specific areas in which um, he was working, he described as uh, obviously doing the scientific research, gathering data in the field um, and using it for the areas of protection of the parks itself and the habitat itself, as well as any enforcement that's required, advocacy and litigation, <clears throat> relocation and land purchase. These were the four different things he talked about, scientific inputs, protection and enforcement, advocacy and lit litigation, relocation and land purchase. So I just wanted to touch on this for just a second um, about um, how do you do your research in the field, just very briefly, um, and why is it different than the way in which the Forest Department or the Indian government might have been conducting it before, which didn't provide adequate data to you, number one. And number two, um, how are you helping in the actual protection? I mean, uh, Kriti just talked about how by supporting the communities that live around the park, you're actually creating another buffer of um, guardians, actually, of the park by, by doing that. But in terms of direct protection, how can you work as an NGO to help that cause? And then later on, we'll talk a little bit about the advocacy portion and the relocation and land purchase. But could you tell us a little bit about the science and protection first, either Ulas or Kriti? Uh, I think the science... I think all, all those four themes go together in some sense. They are all linked. Uh, I think science is fundamental because uh, that's what separates effective conservation based on evidence and knowledge from just conservation that comes from the heart. The heart is important, emotions are important, but you could end up doing absolutely the wrong thing if mm -hmm. you are not. that's not guided by science. So the value of science comes in bringing a reasoned, logical approach to solving a problem or doing something in a specific context. So the value of science is that, and uh, we have always been about 10, 20 years ahead of whatever else people were doing in the country. So in some sense, it's a privilege because we do have better data and uh, uh, but often it doesn't play out well in the real world when people feel uh, they have to give up their outmoded ways of doing things and switch to new things. It's not easy in any society to change the way things are done. So that part of science, pushing it into the management system is harder. But it, it's key. And the question of science is what brings us to the issue of people number of people in a piece of land versus number of tigers. So it clearly shows that beyond a certain level of human densities and human use, tigers simply can't make it. So uh, the voluntary relocation, which used to be harder because people were 20, 30 years ago when we began motivating people to move out of parks, uh, they were apprehensive of going out. They were fearful. Uh, 
insecure. Now that's changed. Actually, people are hankering for what's available outside. Better schools, better opportunities, education, cell phones, whatever. Uh, people do not like the hardship of living in remote areas and suffering animal depredations and not having their kids educated. So it's become easier. So facilitating relocation is a great way to create more room for both people and uh, for tigers and more prosperity for people. But what that does is give you a root in the local society, just like the education programs and conflict mitigation programs that Priti talked about. And you help people to live better outside. They are still in that region, in that neighborhood. It gives you a strong network of people who believe in you. And if there is illegal activity going on, like poaching or something else, <clears throat> what we can then do is to tap into this network, get information that's authentic and real time, and pass it on to the law enforcement agencies. Because uh, NGOs cannot do law enforcement. But we can help the government vastly improve its law enforcement capabilities, because what they lack is real-time information which is what sometimes NGOs get because of their community work. So that, that's where the enforcement uh, plays a critical role. The advocacy cannot be done by research NGOs and CWS and institutions like this. Advocacy has to be a part of the society's response to something going on, right or wrong, whether it is in human rights or in case of fighting some infrastructure projects. But the wider society, once it starts valuing nature, uh, then people take up cases against highways cutting through parks, or they may take up cases against mining. And CWS indirectly, by influencing people's mindsets, has had this role. That's not CWS's mandate. It's not capable, nor it's legally entitled to do advocacy of this kind. But as Indian citizens, everybody is. And many, many people who see a rational solution of how not to have bad development, do find time and energy to fight bad development projects, but not opposing development wholesale in the sense that there should be no industrial development. I, I, so I think that's the tempered uh, advocacy is what we have kind of been able to inculcate in the broader society around us. Understand. Um, one other thing that it doesn't fall under these four areas, but I know you've spent a lot of time and energy and have fundraised for, is also actual education, not necessarily of children uh, in schools, but actually creating um, master's degrees and PhD graduates as well, right, who are trained in this kind of conservation biology. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, the education... Uh has many dimensions, like Wild Chalet that Kriti talked about, yeah. starts at the most fundamental level, uh, which is creating a broad matrix of acceptance and appreciation of wildlife in the rural society right next to wildlife. Next level to me is to create an informed public opinion among leaders or future leaders of these villages, towns, and districts or whatever about the value of conservation. And that's what we started through what we call a citizen science program. We started involving young people from small towns near these parks in doing 
transit surveys, disciplining them to collect data, inculcating a scientific perspective of wildlife. And that led to most of the NGO leaders, conservation community leaders operating, many of them in India came from this program, the citizen science program that we initiated in 1980s. And in 2000, I found that the country didn't have a very good graduate level program in wildlife conservation. Uh, and I had won the Getty Award at that year. And so I decided to earmark the Getty Award and teamed up with the National Center for Biological Sciences uh, to start this master's program, which takes in just 15 people and trains them to the highest standards. And uh, that program has been successful about 100 students have graduated from it. So it's education at all levels is required. And are these graduates working with you in any way or have they created projects of their own? Um, in yeah, the it's a work in progress uh, because the first graduates came out in 2006. Uh, I think some of them have done phenomenally well and become applied conservationists. Some of them have become teachers who are academics who will teach conservation because right now we need we have a need in all these areas. So generally, I think the program has done well, but it's always a struggle when you uh, train people in very nice academic environments and give them high quality training, they tend to lose touch with reality. So it's very important to drag them to the realities, grind their face in the real problems of the world, uh, because without that, any program could soon become very academic and, uh, you know, you get interested in very deep evolutionary questions for which you can seek answers for the next 2,000 years while everything goes down the tube right now. So it's very important to bring that balance back in some of these programs. But overall, I'm happy with it. Right. So I should just mention that CWS, as Ulas is mentioning, is Center for Wildlife Studies. Um, they have a really beautiful website that's updated very frequently, cwsindia.org. A um, couple of things I also want to mention, um, ask you about as well. And in one of your recent posts, so we're all living in this COVID era right now. Um, and there was an article in the news about the tiger at the Bronx Zoo that was diagnosed as having been infected with this virus which originally came from the Wild Kingdom anyway. And there was a lot of people very concerned that it might jump from ca captive animals into wild areas. And Ulas's comment, he didn't really comment so much on that, but he was talking about how during the shutdown in India, during this COVID era, there's been less patrolling, obviously, and increased poaching in certain areas. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, the origin, uh, see, this. all this boils down to understanding what is real around you and responding to it in a timely manner. So the lockdown in India has meant a very large number of people in rural areas have lost their incomes, lost their access to domestic animal protein, and you can expect people to you know, hunt, given those pressures. And uh, the lockdown also implies 
that uh, arresting somebody, producing them in the court, the whole bureaucracy, paperwork involved is totally stalled. So that should have been the first thing that the system would look at. But instead, uh, you know, I worked in the uh, WCS for years and the Bronx who has some fine tiger exhibits. And it turned out that some keeper who had uh, the virus passed it on to a tiger because you literally live with these tigers, treat them, you know, it's like it's possible. It was, it was kind of an odd case of a human transmitting it back to an animal. But it posed no threat to wild tigers in India. But the way the Indian media picked up and laid it up like it was the biggest threat and the government sending notifications and alerting people about COVID threat to tigers, absolutely ridiculous. This is this shows when you are not rooted in reality, when you are not analyzing a situation, when you're not understanding how things are likely to go. There is no vacuum in conservation. Some junk comes and occupies that space immediately. So it's really important for serious conservation scientists or conservationists to constantly watch and prevent junk from occupying the space called conservation. Sure. I guess, um, you know, when I was just thinking about it, um, I'm glad to hear what you're saying, but I was just thinking about the close proximity of humans with wildlife in India, for example. Absolutely, I'll answer that. I anticipated your question. Okay. Uh, This business of isolating uh, viruses and bacteria from wildlife and domestic animals in India is impractical. Our entire landscape is full of viruses. We have anthrax, we have foot and mouth, we have rabies running through our domestic animals, getting passed on to wildlife building immunities, I don't think we can have a model where you can separate the two. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you look at wild populations of tigers, their annual mortality rate is 20%. And not even 0.1% is from disease. It is from poaching, it is from starvation, it is from territorial fights, hundreds of other things. So does it impact wild populations in a negative way is what we have to look at. And I didn't see that. See. A human being can pass on COVID to a tiger if he literally hugs and kisses it, which happens in zoos, which is highly unlikely to happen in the wild in India. Yeah, I guess more I was thinking about, let's say, a cow herder with his cattle. You know, there's constant contact between humans. I mean, we don't have to talk about this for too long, but this is where my mind went. And, And then you see a cow going into the park to graze and then... That, you know, tigers sometimes will predate on this cattle. And so in that way, can it be transmitted? But maybe I was, that's not actually accurate at all. But that's how my mind was thinking about it. Yeah, I think generally separating rabbit dogs and too many cattle with bovine diseases from gaur, uh, rabbit dogs with distemper from leopards may be a good idea. But, uh, you know, in the overall perspective, mm-hmm. that's the part of, you know, protecting a park from human intrusions at a broad level, you can do it, but you cannot individually start treating diseased animals because natural mortalities are very high from disease as well as other things in most populations. That makes sense. That makes sense. So as far as poaching goes, I just want to clarify the poaching that might be on the increase now is mostly for a smaller uh, prey species, right? That, that, that human beings will consume. 
Can you tell me a little bit more about tiger poaching in India and how that's been, let's say, in the last 20 years and if there's been any change, tiger poaching specifically for tiger parts? I think tiger poaching generally has come down quite a bit because where tigers are in reasonable numbers, these are in older parts where there's strong enforcement machinery. So I don't think it's the kind of threat it was 25 years ago. But the bigger threat to tigers still is not tiger poaching. It's always hunting of the hoofed animals. This is why most forests are empty of tigers. And uh, when the lockdown or any consequence of reduced enforcement what people take are the tiger's food. It's as good as killing a tiger. If you take the tiger's food away, the tiger will starve to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Another um, topic that's on the top of people's minds right now, just because of the conversation in the world, is about climate change and global warming and such topics. And I wonder... If you can just say a little bit about whether talking about conservation of habitat or wild, you know, one of the the things that comes up as soon as we open CWS India is um, rewilding India. That's a it's a really beautiful term, rewilding. So, would you say that in any way this these efforts that we're making towards Uh, preserving and possibly expanding habitat for tigers and everything that lives in that habitat can also be an argument for alleviating some of the serious challenges that that we're going to be facing due to uh, global warming or climate, whatever climate reality we might be facing. Is that an argument for that? I I would not stretch it that far, but what I would say is by creating more wild areas Mm -hmm. over a wider part of a country, say India, what you are doing is if there are uh, uh, climate-related collapses uh, of populations of some of these species because of environmental conditions changing, at least there will be alternate places where they can recover or be rewilded. So I think in that sense, this kind of rewilding, expanding the protected area network provides an insurance against damage from climate change. I don't think it's a major weapon against climate change. I think we have to produce uh, food more efficiently, use water less uh, uh, wastefully, generate energy, in a smarter way, I think those are the big solutions. I, I don't think this is a climate solution in that sense. Right. Okay. I see that. Um, so I want to just talk a little bit about Kriti's projects to just to give her a chance to explain, because um, we I want to be able to share this with our people who are interested in supporting you. And um, Kriti gave me an idea of certain ways in which any money that was donated to um, CWS or through Saving Wild Tigers might be put to use. So if I could just mention a couple of things here. Um, Can we talk about Wild Save for a minute, uh, Kriti? Uh, You've mentioned here that with a contribution of $200, we could sponsor a field assistant salary for a month. With a contribution of $400, we could sponsor project coordinator salary for one month. 
And for $500, we could sponsor the uh, construction of a livestock shed. This is obviously for the safety of their cattle. Um, if Can I just ask you a little bit about how many assistants you have out in the field to cover all these areas that you're working in right now? So we have a sense of the scope also. Mm -hmm. So right now, uh, we are working around two parks and have a team of about 10 people. But the plan actually is to expand this uh, to uh, get Wild Survey to more parks because the need is certainly there. There's a lot of people experiencing losses. And uh, the reason I shared the, wild, the, the idea of the shed with you is very simple because we have now long-term data on where repeat attacks are taking place. Uh, we've been able to identify sort of hot spots of conflict. And within that hot spots of where livestock predation takes place, a lot of this is actually leopard uh, or uh, more leopard related than tiger related. So we've worked with about 60 families now building um, sheds for them, but we don't pay the entire amount. The family also puts in because we've also realize that when you completely give something, people don't tend to take care of it. Whereas when they have to invest in it, they take better care of it. Mm-hmm. And so we put in about, you know, 40 to 60% of the cost of a shed and then they put in the difference. And uh, post this, it's a very, so with livestock predation, it's a very simple solution. You build a shed, you put your goats, sheep, cows, buffaloes in there, lock them up. They're not going to be killed by a leopard or a tiger. Well, with crop damage, it's far more complicated. And, you know, we're kind of looking at different ways to look at mitigation and protect people's crops better. But um, so the livestock shed is the easier problem to solve at this point. Right. I should just mention that um, leopards, I guess, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but leopards are probably, um, you find more leopards entering into human um settlements than tigers would you say just because they're more solitary and or more adaptable and can be move around at night more easily than a tiger would that um, be- they're certainly more adaptable a friend and colleague of mine Vidya Atreya uh, has done a lot of amazing work on leopards where her data is showing that leopards you know basically crowds down and sugar cane fields during the day and then come come into villages or come into cities like Mumbai and take out domestic dogs and pigs at night and then go yeah. back in. Right. I read about that. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Um, and also uh, just a couple of other things here for research, which I think seems to be the base like this. Without that, nothing else is going to happen. Some of the other things that Kriti has mentioned is that uh, for a couple of hundred dollars, you can uh, sponsor a pair of binoculars, which is very important, Um, a GPS device, and for about $400, um, a rangefinder. What's that? I think my dad can do a better explanation of a rangefinder, but it's basically a device used to uh, gauge distance between you and any object out in the field. Okay. Um, I just kind of want to highlight something, uh, Nina. Um, as this uh, COVID pandemic has its outbreak and lo- lockdown, uh, what most of us who work in the NGO sector are very concerned about is the donor pullback that's going to happen as a result of collapse of uh, economic uh, markets around the world. And we are all expecting uh, 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 funding to like very severely affect 
uh, NGOs across the world. And I've been in conversations with about 500 different Indian NGOs. And there's a lot of concern uh, uh, with the older, more mature uh, grant-making institutions. We hope they'll continue to fund us. But individual donors make all the difference at this point in time because the flexibility of you know, unrestricted funding that comes from an individual donor allows us to use that money for a Seve program or a Chalet program or a research program. And that's really what we need you know, to kind of survive this in the next couple of years is that flexible funding, which allows us to kind of quickly make decisions on where it can be best used uh, for at this point. Right. So I want to ask you, and I know this is kind of an odd question to ask just after as a follow up to what you just said. But if you and I'd like for both you as well as your father uh, to answer this question, if it were that you were to receive a billion dollars, let's just say, okay. What, how would you just very not, not without, you don't have to go into too much detail, but how would you utilize that money in three very important ways? Like what, where would you put that money for the, to secure the future of the habitat and the tiger and everything else that lives within it? With that, um, I, I would put all the money into actually buying up land because India has just 5% set aside for wildlife and wild places. There's a lot of wildlife in um, areas that are not protected right now. Um, we know many, many species being seen by uh, people. And in some ways, there's a lot of people currently celebrating all the wildlife walking around in, in their streets and their backyards. But really, in a country of a billion people, I think we should aspire to have at least 10% of our land set aside for wildlife. You know, uh, And I think all of the billion would go to just buying up uh, key critical pieces of land in a variety of habitats. And then you would just let the land be? In yeah, a, in because a, na nature knows how to heal, heal herself. I don't think, uh, you know, we need to be tinkering. Just we've seen enough uh, examples of places in India where people have bought land and 20 years later you go back in and it's, the entire place is recovered, right? So, yeah. 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 How about you, Ulas? Uh, I, I would say that is certainly one of the priorities of strategically buying pieces of land, small pieces of land that are at risk from development or some intrusion so that you stop fragmenting the land because buying land on a large scale is not cheap in India. Land is extremely expensive in India compared to US, for example. So we need to have strategic land purchases. I, I would put it as certainly a uh, key priority. But I think there is a ton of money in the government now for conservation, which is not being applied correctly, including land purchase. There is so much money with which land can be bought, but it's being used for something else. So what we really need are community leaders, conservation community leaders who are embedded deeply who have political connections, who have social connections, who have connections to religious people, who think straight and act at scales of the district, the state, perhaps at the federal level. And creating those kind of people often will involve supporting careers of finding people, grooming them, mentoring them, and then 
ensuring sustainable careers for them over time so they can act to use the existing money the existing policies in the right direction so i think that kind of building not academic conservation is but kind of uh, conservation with who who actually act but guided by science i think that would be another area of priority for me if i had that kind of money right so to be able to 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 pay such people to do this work understand okay so my last thought i think at this moment is you know i recall ulas when i first met you and kriti was studying i mean what's what's jumps out at me is that i'm in the states you're in india both of you came to america to study and uh, get your degrees in um conservation biology and i just and so obviously you had there was you came here to learn you've taken it back it's being implemented in india and now uh kriti you have young children and i just wonder what how do you see if you were to look forward into the future what would you wish for for your children to experience and what what do you in in terms of how they live on this earth what would you how would you um imagine that or visualize that well i i i mean i have a 13 year old daughter and a 4 year old uh, <laughs> i think at least the conversations with the 13 year old are beginning to show me that this is a generation of kids who actually cares a little more than than perhaps even my own generation does and uh, i am more optimistic that they will learn to live uh, having less impact on the environment whether in term in terms of you know um recycling better using less water using less energy i think they have the the will to do that 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 generation of kids has it what i hope is that they don't lose their connection to nature because uh watching any number of uh, tiktok videos instagram videos youtube videos national geographic discovery will never replace the joy of seeing a wild tiger in person uh, or any kind of wild animal in person right and and don't lose that connect to nature and that that's my only fear i think they're actually thinking ahead in in terms of all the other ways to live uh sustainably with the environment but if you don't have wild animals left it's going to be a huge loss 100% i mean that's the same feeling that we have here you know in america as well where we have a huge park system and the community actually does engage in in parks a lot in in america it's a big part of the culture but you know that's already under attack under the current administration so there are lots of issues that we're we're reading about and hearing about so yeah i have the same wish for my kid too <laughs> hi this is sunil can i say one yes <clears throat> sunil please make a comment uh, so lesson kriti one thing i have to say going back to nina's question about what would you do with a billion dollars i my comment is that knowing what i know about um how scientifically you proceed you have done throughout your career and effectiveness with which you protected the tiger and the biodiversity that india is really wonderful about i have no doubt that in terms of building the capacity strategically acquiring land 
then protecting the land, making sure that the prey density for the tiger remains high so that the tiger, which is at its maximum biological potential, will rapidly multiply. I have no doubt that you and Kriti are the people who can do it very wisely and get the most bang for the buck, even if it's a billion bucks. So thank you. You ready to write a check, Sunil? <laughs> As soon as the lottery results come out, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm getting particle fever. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Is there anything else that you want to add, say, anything? I think we have covered the ground pretty well. I, I guess the only thing that I think we didn't cover, both Kriti and I feel it, it's the same thing what I call Sunil's particle fever, which is the excitement of doing science, finding new things. And conservation in India is so exciting for that reason, because there's so little known about many of these species, how their populations work. And uh, as you explore deeper, uh, it's amazing the new things you find out. And that's what really charges our batteries, keep going back for more and more. So can you tell us, just give me a, a, just a brief description of what a day is like in the field for you. And, um, no, I'm, I'm not talking of just being in the field. No, and I understand. Out. That's fun. Yes. I'm talking of pure science. Let's, let's take an example. Let's take an example from Sunil's field. There was a mathematician called Marco in 1920s. He developed a certain way of computing probabilities step by step with variations along the way. And that was not used by any scientist till 19, uh, I guess 1950s by particle uh, statistical physicists in quantum mechanics. And in 1990s, wildlife biologists started using it for some of our uh, computations in applying Bayesian statistics to wildlife populations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a universal thread of science and maths that goes through all this. To me, I'm talking of that kind of excitement, which is in addition to the excitement you see being in the field with tigers. Well, I'm glad that you have that inspiration to keep you going forward because one of the, the things about you that struck me as soon as I met you and also over time is how you have stayed with this, with the amount of passion and optimism that you have, both of you, Kriti as well. And well, I, we are eternal optimists. I don't. I think that that, and I I, I don't see a point in be a being a pessimist, right? I think uh, there's so much to fight for. I agree, and it's not too late. So yeah. Well, very good. Keep it up. Keep it going. Thank you so much. And um, I really hope that we can all be together again. And hopefully it'll be in the jungle or Kriti, you'll come to New York and Ulas, you'll come to New York and everybody can get to meet you in person. Um, we're so grateful for the work that you're doing, really. And I think it's a model, you know, for us living in America, I'm always trying to link back to India because that's my heritage. I do have chosen to live here, but I get so much inspiration from the way in which we live in India, um, just right from the olden days and, and, and to hear from you now how there's an inherent empathy 
amongst the people for the wilderness and for nature and an understanding that we are part of it and it is part of us. And I hope that that continues um, going forward as well. Thank you, Nina. Thank so, you, Sunil. Thank you, Nina. Thank you, Sarina. It's been <laughs> wonderful hanging out. We'll catch up in US or here. Okay. Thank you so much. Sending you lots of love. Thank you very, very much. And we'll be in touch Take again care. soon. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.